O God, you who formed the eye, do you not see? You who shaped the ear, do you not hear? So we're asking you to see our blindness and give us sight. Hear our deafness and give us hearing, that we may see your promises and hear your word and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My text this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 62. I'll be reading verses 10 and 11. You can listen or turn there in your Bible to the prophecy of Isaiah. This is God's eternal word. It's always true. It can't be broken. It has been fulfilled. It is God's word. Isaiah chapter 62, verses 10 and 11. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And verse 12, And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. This is God's word. You may be seated. On the way to the church this morning, I told my wife, I like this sermon. She, she said, good, I'm glad somebody's going to benefit. <laughs> so we'll see, but I'm, I'm excited about this message this morning. This is a, this is a strong message from God's Word. It's a, it's a powerful call, and hopefully for those of you that have been in church a long time will be a reminder of things that you know to be true. And if you're new to the faith or exploring Christianity, hopefully this will also explain to you some of what we mean when we talk about Palm Sunday and, and Easter and all of this Holy Week talk. What is that all about? I hope it will be helpful to you as well. Palm Sunday, if you don't know, it culminates the traditional Christian season of expectation, Lent. And it culminates it with the beginning of Holy Week. Palm Sunday begins that, that journey, that slow journey of the week that we call the Passion Week. Mel Gibson had a film several years ago called The Passion that refers specifically to that narrow, tight ending of Jesus' life, the action-packed scene. Actually, the whole Gospels build up to the Passion narratives. And, and it's so important that we sometimes call the entire story of Jesus the Passion. On this Sunday, all four Gospels, which is unique, but all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey to the cheers of a crowd of fans. And because of this context, sometimes this day isn't called Palm Sunday. It's called the triumphal entry because he comes in to, uh, uh, he's kind of riding a victory lap, it appears. But I wonder, is it really a triumph? Is this so-called triumphal entry really a victory lap? 
because in just a few days in the story, Jesus will be arrested, interrogated, mocked, tortured, and then publicly executed to die by exposure or suffocation in the first century Abu Ghraib setting of the cross. This is triumph. This is victory. The one, those that hail Jesus as king in just a few days will hail him in this way. Crucify! 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 What happened? Why the change? I mean, we all know that poles are fickle, but this is fickle to the extreme. I think what happened relates to this word, expectations. Expectations. I'm a fan of movies, as you know, but alas, my budget doesn't always support my habit. And so when that line item in our family budget called entertainment is zero, I take the cheap alternative and watch movie trailers. (laughs) And I can watch them for about an hour, and it's close enough, you know, to a movie that it scratches that itch. I especially like the section of movie trailers for the upcoming movies, you know, where you get to see not just the ones that are out, but the ones that are coming. And occasionally, there's, there's such a big hubbub about a, a movie that's coming out that they'll put up a trailer like a year in advance. Now, this is a big bummer for fans because then fans of the movie have to say, I have to wait a year to watch that? I don't think I can wait. And it's, it's, it's an even bigger bummer when you finally get to the film and you watch the movie and it's like this $9 disappointment. I, I wish I had just stuck with the trailer. The trailer was better than the movie itself. Or they played all the good jokes in the trailer. Or they showed all the good action scenes in the trailer. There's a funny thing about expectations. If you've lived at all any number of years in the world, or as they say, been around the block a couple of times, you know that our expectations are almost always wrong. Almost always wrong. It's like a budget, right? As we begin, I'd like to do a little activity about expectations with you. You need a pencil, if you have one, if you're taking notes. If you don't have one, get one, or you can just think about it. I I know some of you would rather just think about this, and that's fine. But if you're in the writing mood or you're open, get, get a pencil and get ready to jot something down. In the last week, my question is this. In the last week, write this down. In the last week, what was your greatest disappointment? Now, it doesn't have to be heavy. It can be. If, if you're in a heavy mood, what was your greatest disappointment? If, if you're in a really profound mood, let's take the whole life, your whole life. That's heavy. What's your biggest disappointment in life or in the last week? Jot it down or, or just keep it in mind. This relates to expectations, and I'm going to come back to this in a little bit, but just take, this is kind of an exercise. It, it, in, it involves the congregation, right? It's a, it's a learning activity. You can tell I'm a former teacher, so I'm getting the, the class engaged here. Greatest disappointment. For now, hang on to it. We're going to come back to it at the end of the message. My sermon is called, Your Salvation is Coming. 
which comes from the text that I read. It's actually lifted right out of the passage. Verse 11, Behold, your salvation comes. But as you've noticed, the theme of my message is going to be expectations. Specifically, expectations about the Messiah, about the promised Savior. And so I'm going to look at this idea of expectations in three points. First of all, the history of the messianic expectations is prophetic. So we're going to see that it has a prophetic history to it. That's why I'm looking in Isaiah, an Old Testament book, an Old Testament prophecy. We're also going to see that the fulfillment of the messianic expectation was surprising. It wasn't quite what was expected. And then finally, the importance of messianic expectations isn't just in the past, it's current. We're going to see that looking at expectations about the Messiah is still something that we need to do today. So those are my three points. The historic is prophetic um, history, the surprising fulfillment, and its current importance. First of all, it's prophetic history. The passage that I read this morning comes from the Old Testament. And this is a prophet. That's someone who was commissioned by God to represent God like almost like a lawyer would in an argument. So we often find the people of God hearing an explanation from the prophet of God as to how they've gone astray. And the prophet's bringing God's case, in a way. But prophets also, they didn't just bring the bad news, they often brought good news. Okay, you've gone astray, here's my case, but the good news is there's, there's hope. There's hope coming. And this passage is talking about that hope. Also, though, in the passage that Marty read in, in Matthew 21, it says, there's, there's another quotation from an, another prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. Behold, say to the daughter of Zion, similar language is in Isaiah, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is one of the last books of the Old Testament. And there's another prophecy quoted in the, in the passage that Marty read in Psalm 118 where the crowds are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Now think about this for a minute. All these quotations and allusions of Old Testament prophecy, what's the point? What's the purpose of that? But how can I explain that? Well, think about it this way. You're writing a book report, okay? Take you back to middle school or high school or maybe college. And on your book report, your teacher says, make sure you quote the chapter that you're, or the book that you're giving a report on, right? Make sure you include it. They might say at least three quotations from the book. So if you're writing a book report on To Kill a Mockingbird or Billy Budd or a Shakespeare play or something like that, include a couple of quotes. Why would the teacher have you do that? What's the point of the quotation? It's to prove your point, isn't it? It's to show that you've got authority. So you're going back to the source, to the book. You're not just sharing your opinion. You're saying, oh, and here's where it comes from in the book or the play or the story. And that's what Matthew's doing as well. And that's what the crowds are doing. They're going back to the source. They're going back to the authority. The authority, though, isn't just in those verses or the passage that I read from Isaiah. It's all over the Bible. All over the Bible, all over the Old Testament, you have 
these ideas, these, these, these signposts that saying a Messiah is coming, a Messiah is coming. Even back to the very beginning in Genesis, we see these signposts, these statements. So how do you know if you're right? Because the crowds are quoting the authority. They're going to Psalm 118. Matthew's quoting Zechariah 9. I quoted Isaiah 62. You ever wonder if people are taking this thing out of context? You know, how, how do you know that, that the Bible is what it's... Isn't it just a bunch of opinions? How do you know that? How do you know who has the authority to quote the Bible the way that it's being quoted? Well, we've got a controversy, and that's that the crowds are expecting one thing from Jesus... They're expecting a certain kind of king, and they're, they're going back to the, to the source and quoting that from Psalm 118, and, and Jesus is coming with a little bit of a different program. And so we have, we have the, the prophecies that are being quoted. They seemingly are in tension with one another. And that's where my second point comes in, the surprising fulfillment. Isaiah is set in a context that's, a, let's just call it a severe economic downturn, Okay. Isaiah is at a time where the people of God have, are under attack. They're, they've lost their earthly king. He's, he's now a, a, he's basically a puppet king of a foreign invader. Okay, He's been propped up. They're being occupied. And their, their means of worship, their identity with the temple and the king and the land are all under attack. And it's very, very discouraging. And at, at the time of Isaiah, they were, they, were, they were looking for this hope, and Isaiah is, is charging the people with all of their crimes and all of their misdeeds, but he's saying, look, there's hope that's coming. And so the hope that they're, they're looking for is for someone to, to kick out the invader, to restore the king, to rebuild the temple, to cleanse the land. This is what their, their whole lives were all about. And in fact, in, in, the, in the time in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, we call the Apocryphal Period, there was a certain, uh, there was a certain revolutionary named Simon Maccabeus. Listen to this. It's from the Apocryphal book, 1 Maccabeus, chapter 13. On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews, led by Simon Maccabeus, entered the fortress of Jerusalem with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been removed from Israel. This was within a century or so of when Jesus is doing almost the exact same thing. And so the people are thinking, hey, we've got Rome. They've installed their puppet governor, right? We're under Caesar. We can't do things like we want to. We can't carry out our traditions and rituals like we want to because, because of our context. And for the last three years, there's this rabbi who's been doing all kinds of miracles, and now he's riding into the city on a donkey. This is it, guys. This is what we've been waiting for. Hosanna to the son of David. Our oppression is over. Victory is at hand. They thought even the, that very day, I think, that very day, Rome was going to be kicked out. It wasn't the first time either that, that the crowd's fervor had risen to this pitch. I was reading in my devotions this week in John, and I came across John 6.15, where just after Jesus feeds the 5,000, in, in John's account of that story, 
they're so excited and enthusiastic that, that, that John says they tried to make him king by force. You're going to be king whether you want it or not. And, it, and this is what was interesting, too. After that, John writes, and Jesus hid from them. What kind of king is going to hide, right? Oh, no, yeah, this is... No, even there in John 6, he wasn't going along with what the people's expectations were. There were some surprises that he had in store. And now, almost three years later, we find him entering Jerusalem. It's as if he's playing to the crowds. He knows what they're thinking, and yet he's riding in as a king. I don't think this was an accident. Jesus gave specific instructions about what was going to take place. He said, go into the village and you'd find uh, a donkey and her colt tied up there and bring them to me. And sure enough, it happened just like it was. Jesus was an expert in the Old Testament. I mean, he was a rabbi. He was teaching the teachers when he was 12 years old, for crying out loud. He knew what was going on. But was he really about to kick out the occupying forces? Actually, it was the opposite. After this ticker tape parade, so-called celebration, most of the Gospels record that Jesus goes in and actually cleanses out the temple. It's like right after the inauguration, he goes into the Oval Office and, and, and throws out all the tr- all, everything in, say, the, I don't know, the, the Lincoln bedroom or something. You know, he's, he's, he's taking the very thing He's using that exact occasion of celebration of pomp and circumstance to say, no, here's a thumb in your eye. Both sides quote the Old Testament authority. Only one is right. But how could all these teachers, all these philosophers, all these theologians, all these politicians, how could all of them be wrong? thought about that and I thought, hmm, that sounds kind of contemporary, doesn't it? The experts? Wrong? Anybody heard anything like that on the news, say, in the last 18 months? How could we have missed the onset of the subprime mortgage lending crisis? How could such important smart people be duped by Madoff? How could it happen? Some very smart people making a lot more money than I'll ever make, were, were literally duped. Duped. They didn't see it coming. Of course, now they're all experts, right? Oh, yes, we, you know, and, and we're, we're hearing kind of the reflection on retrospect, but nobody saw it coming. Some have said that our current situation is because of greed. Some have said it's denial. Some have said it's pride. But whatever the cause, having a first-century Ivy League parchment, then and now, doesn't insulate us from missing the big idea. It's right in front of you. It's the elephant in the room. It's the obvious conclusion, and somehow everybody missed it. Jesus was so much unlike the, the scribes and the Pharisees that he literally uh, rebukes them. Listen to this. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know the basics? That's something he said to one of these Pharisees. Another time he said to these, uh, to these pastors and rabbis, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. 
You are of your father the devil. Jesus isn't exactly uh, looking for the, the applause of the religious establishment. The crowds saw in Jesus their candidate, but Jesus wasn't running for that office. That's profound. They identified Jesus as their great hope. And Jesus said, I'm not running for that office. My office is the cross. The cross? The cross? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 18.24. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I will destroy, God says, the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. A careful reading of the prophecies, with the benefit of hindsight, I admit, shows that Jesus was on the right mission. The wrong idea was coming from everyone else. Jesus really did have the right idea. In fact, you might say that the problem was all with the donkey. That's right, the donkey. In ancient Near Eastern tradition, the, 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 uh, the circumstances surrounding a victorious king coming into the city to wage a war would be that he would come in on a horse. Jesus came in on a donkey. So the donkey was also, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't for servants, it was definitely a beast that kings would ride in, but they would ride in on a donkey proclaiming a mission of peace. And somehow in the furor and fervor, they missed that fact. He wasn't coming on a horse. He wasn't coming to kick Rome out. He was coming on a donkey because he was coming to die. For whatever reason, what should have been blatantly obvious to them wasn't. The Messiah came, but he came in a surprising way. He didn't come for their elections. He didn't come for their program. He came for his own program. And his own program, in a few short days, would end at the cross. Does this have any relevance to us today? We've seen the the historic, the prophetic, historic background of this, first of all, and we've seen the surprising fulfillment. He, He fulfilled the prophecies, just not in a way that they expected. Does this have any relevance today? I think it does. I think, thirdly, it has an importance for us today that is extremely current. There's a saying goes that, that goes like this, history is written by the, the winner. Exactly. I think it's, for the most part, it's true. It's not usually the oppressed classes. It's not usually the minority. It's not usually the one that's, that loses that gets to write the account of, of what took place. It's usually the one that won. I believe it's true in the case of the Christian story as well. Hundreds of years after Jesus' death, the Roman Empire fell, didn't it? And Christianity continued. And though it appeared that Jesus and his band of Jewish disciples lost on that day to the ruling classes, his resurrection from the dead on the third day, 
and the subsequent dispersal of the faith around the world would prove that Christianity was the winner. And so we have the development in history of something that's called Christendom. History is written by the winners. Christians tend to forget that all 12 of the original disciples died in a shameful way. Christians tend to forget that the same misplaced expectation that blinded the eyes of the religious establishment in Jesus' day still today blind the eyes of the religious establishment. The same crowds that thought they knew what the prophecies were all about and what Jesus' mission and ministry was all about, those same crowds still today think they know what Jesus is up to. And they're wrong. They, they, they are wrong. Christians effectively no longer believe that Palm Sunday applies to them. It's become something of a class reunion, complete with inside jokes. Hey, remember back in the day when we were the, the one that was picked on? Oh, yeah, that was hilarious. Yeah, that, let's get together again next year and tell those same stories again. It's a good thing we're the one making all the money now. You know what they say, that the geeks in high school become the ruling class you know, after graduate school. We're so great. Those were the days. Wasn't that funny? Ha, ha, ha. And so we gather for Holy Week, and we gather for Palm Sunday, and we gather for Easter. But the message of the triumphal entry is as ironic today as it was in the first century. Jesus is not coming for our agenda He's not coming for our program, and he certainly isn't coming to run for our office. Anyone today, as then, who denies the kingship of Christ as he defines it is in the same place that this rabble-rousing crowd was in. Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is today still a stumbling block to religious people and non-religious people alike. Anyone who has their hope in a worldly Messiah, a Messiah that is to fulfill your agenda, is denying him his passage to the cross. It isn't just the Jewish expectations that are spoiled by Palm Sunday. It's the self-serving, self-centered, idolatrous Christian expectations as well. Things like, this is my church, and here's how we're going to do it. Or, this is how long the sermons could be. I had to throw that one in there. (laughs) Or, this is how I want the hymns sung, or not sung. Or, this is how I want communion done, or not done. Or, this is what the the leaders of the church should be doing, or not doing. Or, did you hear what so-and-so is doing? Can you believe she claims to be a Christian? Or I want to be baptized in this way or that way or whatever your pet peeve may be. No matter how strongly you defend it, no matter how many sources you call to your aid, the message of Easter is that the king is going to die for the sins of his people then and now. All of our prejudices and all of our misconceptions. So my thought was this. Whenever Jesus becomes your God in your pocket, your hip pocket, that you pull out at convenient occasions, that's when you are on the wrong side of of the prophetic interpretations of Palm Sunday. 
that's when you're quoting the wrong verses. Whenever Jesus becomes your wishing stone, your lucky rabbit's foot, a faith that works when only it works for you, you toss the palm branches on the road of your life and you welcome Jesus down the pathway that you've prepared for him, the script that you've written out for him to fulfill the, the, the play and the drama that you expect. That's what Palm Sunday is about now. That's the current significance of Palm Sunday today. Here comes the king. He's humble and seated on the donkey's colt. What will you do with him? I thought about this, that the blankets that they throw down on the road are the blankets of their righteousness. They're throwing down on the road the blankets of of their plans for Jesus. And what Jesus says is, no. I throw down myself in the road. You walk through me. I am carving out my own path. The message this morning, the all hail to the chief this morning, is that Jesus has come and we are to submit to his agenda. He's not siding with Republicans. He's not siding with Democrats or whatever the ancient equivalence to that was. He's not siding with this political cause or that political cause. He's siding with this mission to quote Mark 10.45 to give his life as a ransom for many. This program, this ransom program, was in place even in Isaiah's day. Verse 12 of my text, they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed, the ransomed of the Lord. This is a glorious triumphal entry, but it is a hidden glory. It's the glory of a servant. It's the glory of a cross. In conclusion, we started out by talking about movie trailers, and I wanted to return to that idea. You know, when you see one of those movies that, where the movie doesn't quite live up to the trailer, that's frustrating. So when you signed up to be a Christian, if you're a Christian, when you signed up for the faith, you saw a trailer, basically. Somebody explained to you, probably a, a loved one or a good friend, or maybe you actually read it in the Bible, and you thought, wow, that sounds pretty great. I want to go see that movie. And now, as a Christian, as a believer, someone who's following God, if, if that's who you are, how's the movie playing out for you? Is it what you expected? Is it living up to the, the hope, the hype? Or is it, is it not quite living up to what you thought? The exercise that we did in the beginning, where you wrote down a, your biggest disappointment this week, or if you're in a, a heavy mood, the biggest disappointment of your life, what was it? Don't tell me, but recall it to mind now. Look at it. What's Jesus trying to do in that? Palm Sunday is about changing our expectations, I think. Shaping them, bringing them back to his agenda. I find that my expectations, and I've had to learn this through hard experience, my expectations are disappointing because they weren't in line with God's. So looking at that item, or thinking about it, what's God trying to do in that situation? What's he trying to say? Do you know? If you're like me, the answer might be, no, I have no idea. But he is trying to do something. 
He's trying to do something, and it relates to him being Lord. It relates to him being the king. He died and rose again, not for your plan, but for his plan. He's welcomed you into his plan. Why do we fight so much? Why do we resist so hard the plan of God? You know, it's part of, part of the Christian plan, the discipleship plan. And if you didn't hear this when you signed up for it, it's important that you hear it now, that we take up our cross every day. So that the cross that Jesus went to wasn't just for him, my friends. It was for you. That he calls you to die. Eventually, physically, but until then, metaphorically, figuratively, spiritually, to die. To give up, to relinquish your agenda, the screenplay that you've written. Here's a prayer that you might consider using as you think about this disappointment or whatever else that you're struggling with today. Jesus, thank you for blank. Until now, I had no idea how little power I had over my life and how desperately I need your victory. Jesus, would you please define victory for me? I'm apparently not doing so good a job at that. You're the king after all. I submit to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you continue to surprise us. You continue to confound our expectations. And yes, we need it. We do need it. We need you to upset the apple cart of our tidy plans, of of our control issues, as we've mentioned earlier in the service. We need the good news that you've taken care of the control, that you are in perfect control, and we need to trust you day by day, like little children. God, we pray that the disappointments which are hanging in the air, as it were, right now, that your grace, that the power of your Spirit would touch each one, and that for some who don't believe, that it would be a catalyst for them to put their faith in this all-controlling, sometimes expectation-defying Jesus King. For others, Lord, who are, are long in the faith, that it would be a clarifying refreshing, encouraging good news today that you have it all in in control and that your plan really is a good one despite our disappointments. Would you help us in this? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.